Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, one of the most anticipated museum exhibitions of recent years, in part because it's been delayed for nearly two years by the pandemic, Harry Bertoya at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. My first guest is Marin Sullivan, who co-curated Harry Bertoya Sculpting Mid-Century Modern Life with Jed Morse. It's the first American museum retrospective of Bertoya's work in over 50 years. The exhibition is at the Nasher through April 24th. It features over 100 works, including Bertoya's early jewelry and furniture designs, monotypes, sculptures, commissions he fulfilled for architect clients such as Gordon Bunshaft and Eero Saarinen, and plenty more. The exhibition is accompanied by a really good exhibition catalog published by the museum in collaboration with Verlag Scheidegger and Spice. IndieBound and Amazon each offer it for about 60 bucks. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Olivia Block and sound she's made from Bertoya's so-called sun ambient sculptures. Before we get to the program, if you listen on Spotify, Spotify has added the opportunity to give us a five-star rating. So please give us a five-star rating. Anything less means you don't really like the show, right? Thanks very much. Marin Sullivan, after the break. The Mississippi Museum of Art is pleased to be the first to present A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration. This exhibition asks 12 contemporary artists to trace their personal stories through the Great Migration and explore their family connections to the South. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition will unveil newly commissioned works across media. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, opens at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson on April 9th. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. On view at the Getty Villa Museum through January 24th, 2022, Rubens, Picturing Antiquity, is the first exhibition to focus on Flemish master Peter Paul Rubens' fascination with the art and literature of ancient Greece and Rome. Named an essential art exhibition to see this fall by the Los Angeles Times, the show features thrilling drawings, oil sketches, and monumental paintings juxtaposed with rarely shown ancient objects, including exquisite gems owned by Rubens himself. Heroic nudes, fierce hunts, splendid military processions, and Bacchic celebrations illustrate Rubens' ability to translate an array of sources into new subjects. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition, Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Marin Sullivan, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight. The first dozen or so works in this show are household objects, if you will, such as a vase or a brooch and, and so on. How might we understand Harry Bertoya's ability to work at both the scale of the hand, like a brooch, and at the scale of a building, such as in the case of the 52 site-specific commissions he produced 
mostly for architectural clients. How might we understand his ability to do both, to migrate from one to the other? For Bertoya, I think a crucial thing that everybody should be aware of is that for the most part, he is making everything by hand himself. So whether it's a you know 50-foot screen or a small piece of jewelry, this is really an artist who was handmade maker. And yes, for the larger scale projects, oftentimes had the, the help of assistants working at his studio in Pennsylvania. But every single work is distinct and every single one really was guided by Bertoya's hand, which is you know very, very different than I think of what we associate with kind of like post-war American sculpture, especially as we get later into the 60s. So, you know, when we're looking at the kind of more domestically scaled objects that really when we look at his career broadly were concentrated when he was active as a teacher and student at the Cranbrook Art Academy. Those are things absolutely that were always made with a, a mind of functionality in them. But I actually think that that's a really important lesson of Cranbrook is that and that he carried with him throughout the rest of his career. And that art was always something that he wanted to be beautiful and that he wanted to express his own kind of personal artistic vision of the world, but never ever shied away from that level of functionality that we see very early on. In, in a vase or a necklace that had a kind of use value to it. So those larger architectural commissions that he'll continue on for, for the better part of his career, that also had a function, right? And I think for him, art was something that was supposed to be used and seen and, and very much a part of everyday life. So I think those kind of lessons of the domestic and functional that he picked up in Cranbrook really lasted his entire career. One more kind of big picture thing before we get into the chronology of Bertoya's career. One of the things I don't understand about the consideration or reception of Bertoya's oeuvre in the 45 years since his death, except, you know, until maybe the last half decade or so, is this. So the Judd Foundation and the commercial dealerships in the Judd orbit, to name just one minimalist, have made great hay of Donald Judd's work as a designer. Lots of exhibitions on many continents. You can still buy the designs. There, there's a whole Judd Foundation building of them, more or less, in Marfa, Texas, you know, fire notwithstanding. And, of course, that's had no impact or, indeed, a very positive impact on the art world's consideration of, say, Judd and his career. With Bertoya, it has often, since his death, seemed to be kind of the opposite. Why? Why that paradox? Why that difference? Yeah, I mean, I think in in a lot of ways, the the difference maker is that an artist like Judd, through his estate in his own lifetime, was able to establish himself as a serious modernist artist, right, who, who made art that was about art. And the design work, while I think always super crucial to the conversation and an important aspect of his broader practice, now can be looked at as like a supplement or an addendum. Oh, look at how interesting he is beyond just, you know, the, the manufactured work. And I think for Bertoya, I guess in some ways he's like ahead of his time and that he doesn't have those divisions and he's not overly interested in kind of playing the art for art's sake game. He's not, you know, the, the people that he hangs around with uh, during his lifetime are really not artists, they're architects and designers. And he isn't overly interested in the New York art world. He's not overly interested in critical reception. And it's not that he doesn't take himself seriously or doesn't want his art to be serious. I think he's just, 
just not overly interested in playing that game. And I think in the immediate post-war period, when his artistic career really starts to take hold, he's somebody who comes out of the architecture and design background at a moment when that is not what a quote-unquote fine artist should be doing. You know, he's not trained through an art school. He's trained as a designer and art as an architect, and he very much is a maker and is willing to work with clients and willing to work on commissions and willing to be collaborative. And I think, again, coming out of the kind of Cranbrook tradition, that's super kind of foundational in in his practice. And so I think because he never sees the divisions, right? And I think that's very much what the exhibition from the get, that was always our intent with the show is, you know, to really present to the visitor, the viewer that a vase a monotype, a sounding sculpture, a large-scale commission, all of these things are part of the same artistic language or lexicon. And for Bertoia, there was not a division between those things. One was not more or less important. And so there's just not that hierarchy. There's not that kind of snobbery. There's not that kind of exclusionary kind of approach in his practice. And while I think that's much more in vogue today, it certainly wasn't during the latter part of his career. And then I would say the immediate kind of decades following it. And he also kind of dies fairly young and doesn't have a firmly established kind of estate or gallery to really take up the mantle of that legacy. And I think that would be the also the, the difference between artists, not only like Judd, but but contemporaries like Calder, right? If you have a really, really strong advocate, even after you, you pass away as an artist, it makes a huge difference to how your legacy gets shaped and formed. The first objects in the show date to the late 1930s. Starting in around 1942, Bertoia begins producing monotypes, or at least that's when the first monotype in the show is from. And he makes thousands of them over the course of his life. What influence do the monotypes have on his practice and how are they reflective of his interests? Yeah, absolutely. The monotypes, uh, another really, really not only foundational in terms of the beginning of his career, part of Bertoia's practice, but also something that remains a constant in every year and every decade, even if the kind of form or subject matter of them do change and kind of ebb and flow throughout the decades. They certainly began when he came to Cranbrook. He was working in the printmaking studio, and there are some examples pretty early woodblock prints, more traditional kind of printmaking practices. And he, I think, pretty soon into learning and, and cultivating his printmaking practice, really doesn't like the rigidity of kind of traditional printmaking and finds the monotype, which really allows him to work in a much more kind of fluid, immediate, more experimental way. And so some of those earlier monotypes, we have some in the show too, from the very early 40s, that kind of carry over that woodblock idea. So he's literally using blocks of wood to kind of stamp and paint onto the monotypes of some of those really, really beautiful, blocky, colorful prints from early on in the show convey that kind of technique. So he's, he's immediately pulling from, from woodblock printing into the monotype mode of printing. And the monotypes, again, are something where we see him exploring ideas, exploring new forms. There is a lot of carryover between the monotypes and other aspects of, of his practice, whether it's design work, commissions, 
sculptures, a lot of those those same kind of motifs and themes carry over. And so for, for Bertoia, the idea also was a way of, of kind of capture, not just exploring, but, but capturing those ideas, putting them into kind of physical practice that he could return to. And he's not really, though, though he is a very talented, gifted drafts person and, and can absolutely draw, you know, can draw very, you know, well, like sometimes he'll do like sketches or drawings, you know, as receipts for, for, for particular works as a way of recording them. But the the monotypes really do serve as his sketchbooks. He will once he moves to to Pennsylvania to more rural Pennsylvania, you know, he'll he'll be at his studio all day in Valley, Pennsylvania, working on sculptures. He'll come home, have dinner with his family, and then kind of immediately transition into his studio, his barn studio on his his home property. Uh, there was a kind of lofted area in that studio space, and he would just kind of churn out monotypes every day, right? So it was very much. A, a kind of ritualized practice. And I think that's also what accounts for just the, the sheer magnitude in terms of numbers of the monotypes with, within his practice. You mentioned rural Pennsylvania. He lived more or less between King of Prussia and Allentown. I'm glad you mentioned the blocky monotypes because the first couple specific works I wanted to bring up are a demonstration of the relationship between the monotypes and the sculpture. So all of, all of Bertoia's works, more or less, are, are untitled. So I'm going to do my best to describe what I'm talking about both for us, but also for the listener. And so that for when listeners go to the show page at manpodcast.com, hopefully it'll make it pretty easy to tell what we're talking about. There is a not dated monotype in the foundation collection, which in the catalog is paired with a 1953 copper and bronze sculpture in the Museum of Fine Arts Houston's collection, roughly 1953. And it seems to me like it's probably the ideal example of ideas migrating from one to the other. I, you know, we don't know which direction, but it, but, but it seems like it's a pretty good argument for the unity of a practice. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as we've really started to, you know, over the, the few years with the show, dived into research alongside the development of the Catalog Raisonne project with the Harry Bertoia Foundation, the monotypes are absolutely revealing themselves to be crucial to understand not just Bertoia's artistic practice, but his sculptural practice. There are hundreds of examples in the monotypes that I think the natural impulse is certainly as a, a curator, an art historian would be to match those up. And the, the example you point to in the catalog is one of those where, you know, I think the resonance between the sculptural object and the monotype are, are very clearly visible. And, and there are certainly other examples, including some of the larger scale commissions where, you know, there's some great examples of the, the Philadelphia Civic Center fountain that Pretoria will create where we have monotypes, kind of lined blue monotypes that very much are the same forms, exploring the same ideas. And so the inclination is to be like, oh, well, this is this is like a sketch of that work, a 2D representation of that work. And I think because Pretoria doesn't title any work, very rarely, I mean, almost never dates any work, I'm really, really hesitant to make any leaps that says this is a one-to-one -one correlation, that this is absolutely a representation and monotype of that sculpture, either before or after. And I also don't think Bertoia really works in that way where, you know, he's not somebody who's recording works after he creates them, nor is he somebody who's really kind of like 
sketching out works, right? Even in the larger scale commissions, we don't have a lot of maquettes or models or sketches. He's doing all of that, but it's it's not really formalized. It's not a one-to-one thing. Again, it's much more fluid across that. But I do think that looking at those monotypes does give us an insight into his thought process and his working process. And that is a really invaluable thing. You know, as much as I want to shy away from being like, well, that's a monotype of that sculpture. It's still a tool and it's still a tool to help us kind of gain insight into how he's thinking through these forms and how he's layering them and how he's using, you know, line and volume and space and color in some cases, texture, all of these things kind of translate in really interesting ways. And I think help us to see what was really crucial about about his work. A sculpture known as, or maybe perhaps titled as Landscape Fantasy from about 1950 seems like an early-ish work of really great importance. It's at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. What does landscape fantasy suggest about interests that Bertoia will pursue or manifest in his work thereafter? Yeah, a really, really unusual work. This is one of those pieces that, again, kind of gets a, a title after the fact. Our, our, the official credit line from the from the MCA is certainly landscape fantasy, and they, it, it, it does belong to a group of work that uh, Bertoia is creating in the early 50s that has a more horizontal orientation to them, the landscape kind of form, which usually involves some sort of base with a multiplicity of sculptural forms extending outward from that base does exist during this time period. But even later on, when he's experimenting in different types of metals and techniques, this kind of landscape form is something he will return to. So it's something that is a repeated kind of motif throughout his career. I think the the one from the, the landscape fantasy from around 1950 is particularly important because it's one of his earliest proper kind of sculptural works. And again, I say that with a little bit of hesitancy, just because I think, you know, all of his work is sculptural and all of it is artistic. And I don't want to create these kind of artificial delineations between categories. But this one is created at a moment in his career when he is shifting from working in a more overtly design realm. It it is right prior to when he will move to Pennsylvania to work for Knoll. And his design work very much is is a kind of short-lived moment that transitions into his kind of full-time commitment to sculptural practice. So this is a really early sculpture. And I think it is one that already is giving us a sense of how important wire is going to be throughout Bertoia's career. You know, as much as, as this show really is about metal, I think even more specifically, it's it's highlighting just how crucial metal in all sorts of thickness and material was foundational in, in Bertoia's career. And this is a slightly unusual case in that we have lead as well, like this, these kind of folded up pieces of lead that affix to, to the wire, which again, I think hints towards that kind of tactility in Bertoia's work, the, the idea that he really wanted everything to look like it was touched by him, right? Like these were things that were not fabricated by machines. And I think this is led, of course, even though it's not a particularly common material in, in American sculpture in the post-war period, there's crucial blips of, of experimentation. And I think all of the sculptors from that period who do use lead are using it for its malleability, for its ability to really convey the touch of, of the artist. And that's certainly what he's doing in this piece. 
I also think, you know, in terms of it's both a, a little bit of an outlier and an earlier piece, but if we look at that kind of small construction on the right-hand side of that sculpture, there's like like a four-posted sculptural form that has kind of two platforms on it. And this is a form that we will see repeated through subsequent decades later on in Bertoia's work, including it will appear in some of the sounding sculptures later. So I think also, while Bertoia is not an artist who's traditionally working kind of in series or in periods throughout his career, there is a lot of repetition of form. And so in landscape fantasy, we see some of the elements that are, of course, appearing in monotypes from this period. You could look at any monotype, kind of the linear monotypes from the 1950s and see a lot of correspondence. But even in some of those triangular shapes, certainly that four-posted shape. These are things that are already in swirling in Bertoia's head and that will kind of physically manifest themselves in multiple forms throughout the subsequent decades of his career. Landscape fantasy includes forms that sure look like trees to me. And one of the surprises of the catalog for me was how many natural forms exist throughout the oeuvre. There are clouds, there are trees, there's the MIT Chapel Project with Eero Saren and that recalls falling water or, or a beam of light or perhaps intentionally both. What do we know about Bertoia's interest in nature and representing it in his work in clever, coy, sometimes abstract forms? First and foremost, Bertoia is somebody who never wants to be very heavy-handed in how viewers of his work are going to interpret it, right? This is actually why the pieces remain untitled. He very specifically says at one point in his career, I don't I don't want to assign titles because I don't want to kind of color how people approach the work and see them. You know, it's not what we will see minimalist sculptors in the later 60s do with untitling their work. The, this was very much about an openness of interpretation. Even though now galleries and museums and private collectors oftentimes assign titles titles, descriptive titles to Bertoia's work. This is something that happens because I think there are these forms that are so clearly corresponding to things in nature and terms that Bertoia himself did use during his lifetime. So these are not artificial kind of categories. And this is certainly something that the catalog Raisonnet is working very hard to kind of establish a single, very deliberate lexicon of Bertoia's practice to kind of course correct some of these incorrect or slippages between descriptive terms within his practice. But it's not a mistake that, you know, there is a category for straws and dandelions lions and bushes and trees and broccoli trees and, you know, this whole kind of range of form. And, and as you mentioned, you can already see this kind of appearing in landscape fantasy. The reason that the landscape kind of gets associated is not just the horizontal kind of base and orientation, but also the way that what is extending from that base seems to be natural in its reference point. And I think nature proves an absolutely significant reference point within Bertoia's careers. The the dandelions, for example, he talks about how after he went on, the only time actually he returns to Italy after emigrating to the United States through Canada, he returns because of a Graham Foundation grant in the 50s. And the dandelion forms comes out of his his time in Italy and, and kind of seeing the fields there and dandelions and sunflowers. 
So that kind of crucial centrifugal form that we will see appear upon his return to the United States or on the projects that he's creating in the wake of that Graham Foundation grant. That absolutely is something he's looking at in nature. And his Pennsylvania property is another huge source of inspiration. He talks about how how that's what he's looking at and that's what appears in his work. So it's not it's not a coincidence that that's the terminology that develops around his practice. It's absolutely what he's looking at. And I think in his way, again, even the work that he ends up producing does really manifest the spirit of openness and that you can see those trees and you can look at a a piece like the MIT chapel, for example, you know, whether it's shimmering leaves, falling water, rays of light, all of those things can coexist together. And he wants, even though he might be thinking of a specific reference point in nature, he really does want all of those things to be commingling and for the viewer to bring their own references to that work. So that's also why, you know, with, with pretty rare exception, all of his work really can and should be described as as abstract, right? There's there's very few works that are intentionally kind of representational in that way across his, his body of work. A couple years after Landscape Fantasy, there's an interesting moment in around 1952. It's when Bertoia is designing his famous diamond chair and his maybe even more interesting but less famous <laughs> bird lounge chair. And so he's making these chairs with with wire, and he's making a 1953-ish sculpture, which is known as unhelpfully as possible as conceptual sculpture. Thanks, isn't it all? But it's a work now at the Davis at Wellesley, and we'll have all of these at, at onmanpodcast.com. Is, is this a moment when he's maybe most informed by the design work or is breaking with the design work. There's clearly a formal similarity here and it's clear something has happened and is happening. What is that? (laughs) Yeah, no, I absolutely think that for me, and I'm I'm not a design historian, I'm a sculpture historian. So I I obviously see this, see this, you know, colored from my own uh, research interests, but there's this interesting question that I think the show raises in my mind, which is, are the, are the chairs sculpture or are the sculpture chairs, right? Like what's, what's the different difference? And I think that, it, again, is a driving question of the exhibition overall is, is why do we distinguish between those things, right? For Bertoia, it the chairs and the sculpture practice emerge at you know, roughly the same time. Certainly his, his primary focus in coming to Pennsylvania and his energies are very much going into the furniture design after his move to Pennsylvania. But it's important to remember that Florence and Hans Knoll really do give him pretty free reign to experiment in however he wants. When they when they contract him to work for Knoll, it's not like, hey, you're going to make us these five chairs or this sweeting of seating, right? Like it, it is very much like, hey, come work in our workshop, design for us, see what see what you do. Right. And I think that comes in the wake of him learning to weld when he's in Southern California. He was not a welder when he was at Cranbrook. He was doing much more kind of direct kind of modeling of metal and, and the kind of uh, hollow wear, right? It's a different type of metal making. So he teaches, he, he takes classes in Southern California, learns to weld, um, and then moves Santa, out Santa to... Santa Monica City College, in fact. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where he learns that skill. And, and he will absolutely become just like a master welder, right? By the time, like within just 
a, a couple of years. And so the chairs, right, he he's given this kind of task and he has this focus of making something for Noel, right? That That is what he's ostensibly hired to do. But I think it is his work on the chairs that opens the door for sculpture, right? And it's within just a couple of years of him moving to Pennsylvania where he will say to Noel, hey, this has been great, but I really want to devote my attention full-time to sculpture. So even though he makes this tremendous splash and, and makes, you know, one of the most iconic suites of furniture of the 20th century, you know, you can see with that, again, wonderful maquette for a conceptual, conceptual sculpture from 1953, that he is already kind of transferring those ideas or thinking about how the same ideas that were alive in the chairs can then move into a more sculptural mode. And and even, you know, in the early 50s, as he's creating the seating and exhibiting it for Noel, and it's going into production for Noel, you know, he's, he's already talking about how, you know, it's about sculptural space. So for him, the chairs absolutely have a, a functional value to them, and they are very much thought of with the human body in mind. But, you know, the way in which he kind of immediately moves from that, and that's why we were so happy to, I think, have the piece from from Davis in the exhibition, because it's it's probably like the most overt example of how he's taking that wire grid form and transferring it into, uh, you know, a quote unquote sculpture. And then even when we start to see the other kind of wire constructions, though, from the early 50s, you can see the same way he's working with planes and grids and the kind of delineation of space through sculptural form. So I think there is a lot of, you know, correspondence going on between those things. And the fact that for the most part, the type of sculpture he's going to move into in the early to mid 50s are the multi-planes. And I think that a little bit more textured, a little bit maybe uh, messier than the, the, the chairs, but they are very much of the same sculptural language. It's a really exciting moment. And I think we are going to see that un- unfolding in the show. We certainly see it in the catalog. So what what he's doing is, as you described it, the, these ideas are migrating. And what he's really adding, if you will, in the sculpture are these square or rectangular, sometimes both, planes that become, you know, fully conceived three-dimensional objects, three-dimensional sculptures. Where do the squares and rectangles come from? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something where we really see, I think, all of the ideas that have been percolating in Bertoia's head, starting at Cranbrook, through the furniture pieces, through the design work, through the monotypes, really come to fruition in the sculptures. So those multi-planes, you know, you could look at it, they're, they're being affixed into that kind of grid-like pattern that obviously has a formal resonance with the chairs. But then we can also look back to some of those earlier monotypes in the 40s, those wood blocky, colorful prints. And it's that same idea of multiple planes that are coming together. And he's expanding that into a more three-dimensional space. So there's certainly resonance between the monotypes, the earlier monotypes, the chair work kind of coalescing together. But what's also really interesting, kind of from the get in the multiplane works, is that he's also oftentimes adding in additional kind of like more delicate wire shapes, right? So the piece that came from the North Carolina Museum of Art, the sculpture from the early, around the early 1950s, again, another freestanding multiplane sculpture, but you can see these kind of like wonderful little wire pieces that are sticking up and kind of punctuating and breaking up those, those different bases created by the grids and metal rectangular planes. So, you know, that also is something that you can think of 
with landscape fantasy, with the more kind of linear monotypes that he's creating in the 40s and early 50s. So again, it's it's really, I think this is where what's so exciting, I think, about bringing all different aspects of his work into the exhibition is that you do just see how much is bouncing around between discipline, between medium, between technique. And it never seems muddled. It never seems messy. It never seems out of place. But it also doesn't just seem like it's just repeating, right? And and this is something that I always like want to stress when I'm talking about Bertoia is that every single work is different. Even the works that you think of from the get that might be really, really similar in form, each one is is distinct and is it has something that's you know he's tinkering with and adding to and that also to me it's like he's like you can kind of see in the early stages of the exhibition and and the works from the early part of his career how he's like laying this foundation that he's just going to draw upon for the rest of his career there's a work Bertoya makes in 1953 in the Art Institute of Chicago's collection that kind of brings together everything we've talked about so far It's a work that either he titled or that is known as Construction After the Enjoyment of a Mulberry Tree. According to the Art Institute's website, the work has not been on on exhibition since the museum acquired it in 1954. Presuming that's right, that is wild. And it's a work that particularly got me thinking about what is art historically informing Bertoia in these, these key years. I mean, I see... Lots and lots of David Smith, a whole lot of David Smith, so much David Smith. I also see Cubism. I see some Miro. Oh, and, and I guess in that construction in, in Chicago, I also see Klimt, Klimt's early 1900s forest paintings, tree paintings. What do you see? What do you think was or know was informing him in these years? Yeah, I mean, I will say about this work, this is actually like a properly titled work. It is one of the few, the few that like doesn't just have a descriptive title. This was the work that was assigned by Bertoia. It was shown as part of their American Painting and Sculpture exhibition. And then one that Watson Blair Prize, which is why it was acquired into the Art Institute collection in 1954 and was exhibited as part of that exhibition. And I think what, as was the standard during this moment to kind of have works be properly titled. So this is one that he did give that title to, which is interesting kind of in and of itself. And the fact that he, I think settles on this title that exactly as you're saying kind of combines these interesting threads that we've already been discussing. So we have construction right in that title, which is which is foundational to I think much of Bertoia's work. Sculptural work is is this idea of constructing sculpture, right? Of adding and welding and putting in a multiplicity. And, and we still have that grid-shaped pattern that's still appearing, right? It's becoming a lot a lot busier, a lot more populated. This is a much denser screen than some of the other wire constructions or, or multi-planes that we, we see in the early 50s. But then we also, again, have that addition in the title of a mulberry tree. Right. And I think that that referencing, again, the natural world and what Bertoia is seeing around him. So certainly, you know, as much as this is a rectangular, gridded, welded sculpture, the fact that we have these kind of like little legs, these these trunks coming out of the bottom that Bertoia does often with these kind of freestanding screens is significant. And then I think the fact that I've just used the term screen here, also important into this story in terms of what I see in this work, that functional aspect again, right? Like so many of these multiplane constructions that we see in the 50s are described as screens and very much could be used in a way in, in 
in someone's home or a business of screening off space, of dividing space. They, they absolutely have decorative, functional connotations to them, which is another reason why they kind of fall out of favor within the standard art historical narratives around American art and American sculpture in the post-war period. So we certainly kind of have all of those those threads being wound together. Even though it must be said, lots of American artists were doing decorative things and even more European artists, especially in the wake of World War II when the French were reclaiming the decorative tradition were doing it. So it is just a wild thing. It's just so wild. It is. It was for the artists, I think that we're working, you know, the decorative was not maybe outside of Mark Roscoe, the decorative was not a four letter word, right? Like this was something that that was actually a, a very rich area for exploration. And, and just as you're saying, you know, coming out of that European tradition and, and your question about like, well, what else is Bertoia looking at when he's developing his work? I think the evocation of Klimt and some of the, the early European avant-garde artists is, is spot on. And I think the other kind of crucial piece of, of this story to remember is that Bertoia's father-in-law happens to be Wilhelm Valentiner, <laughs> who is, you know, one of the most foundational curators, directors of American museums in the 20th century and himself an established art historian of European modernism has many, many works by Klempt in his own personal collection. This is something that Bertoia would have seen and there's actually correspondence and the family recalls as well you know, how Bertoia would straight up name check Klimt, right, as a source of inspiration for the monotypes. And I think that transfers over into, you know, the the sculptures as well. So Bertoia, while somebody, again, who I don't think is, he does obviously have training and exposure to art, other artists and art history. His reference point definitely is more from the design and architecture perspective, but but certainly through Valentiner and through being in Detroit and, and going to the Detroit Art Institute, Institute of Arts and seeing Valentiner's collection and just his training at Cranbrook is being exposed to European modernism. That, that's specifically the, the avant-garde of the early 20th century. That's certainly the reference point. And of course, that's a crucial part of, of the kind of Bauhaus tradition that will inform places like Cranbrook in the United States in the mid-20th century. And of course, Klimt's own relationship to the decorative has always confounded American-based art historians when it comes to understanding what to do with Klimt. I mean, Klimt's right there at the beginning of modernist flattening in 1903, and you, you just never see American museums or art historians include him within within that story. But I digress. Starting in around 1970, Bertoia begins making pieces that have kind of a, a rectangular base and then vertical rods that pop up in a row, in a single row, or in a shape with three-dimensional depth. He'd been making pieces with vertical rods for a while. You mentioned screens a moment ago. There's a great 1955 screen tree that's, that was made for an institutional commission that's now Crystal Bridges. But these pieces are, you know, kind of like forests of rods on a base. But they're really striking, and they're, they're maybe his most distinctive, famous works, certainly the most installed in American art museums these days. Where did they come from? Again, as I mentioned, we don't have Bertoia kind of working in distinct series or periods, but there are definitely kind of concentrations where he's particularly kind of enamored or moving his practice in a particular direction. And I think the kind of wired screens that we see develop 
in the, the later 1950s into the 60s. Those absolutely, again, are coming out of the wire constructions. They're coming out of the multiplanes. But he's thinking a lot about how he can use wire, right? And those green trees or kind of vertical-oriented rows of wire certainly then will move into the, what are known as the straw works, which is where he starts to kind of change the axes of those rods. And they start to kind of get into these clusters of straws and the, the wires and get thicker almost into rods. But with all of these works, what we see again doing is Bertoia really kind of pushing the possibilities of metal. And it's not just metal, though, it's industrial metal. And I think that's another really crucial aspect of the story that certainly relates him to figures like Smith, but also just broadly to this kind of explosion of materials in post-war American sculpture. Those wires and rods that we see in Bertoia's work, he is getting directly from industrial sources, right? He's going uh, and ordering these materials as they are manufactured for industrial use. And then he starts to modify them and starts to play with them and manipulate them. So in these kind of screen tree works, you know, what, what doesn't necessarily translate in photographs, unless you have a really awesome zoomed in detail, is just how much he's coding them and adding in different materials. So with a lot of the straws and a lot of the kind of more screen tree type of works, those kind of like the, the visual noise that you see in the center that's kind of growing off of what we might call the branches, those are actually these kind of like buildup of materials that he will patinate and use. Sometimes you'll see enameled pieces go in there. Sometimes it's different patinas. Sometimes it's different metals. So a lot of the kind of screen trees and straw pieces actually have a lot more color than I think people realize in them. So the texture just kind of builds up even more. And that, again, is really Bertoia pushing and exploring the possibilities of different metals. And what we already started to see in the multiplane screens, and it, again, it's hard to tell in kind of a full shot of, of the straw or, or screen tree works, is this technique of melt coating, right? So he'll take a kind of industrial fabricated rod or wire or, or kind of metal form, and then he will actually, you know, heat those metals, melt coat different metals and alloys on top of them to create these really, really intense mixtures, right? He's kind of like this alchemist of metal combining all of these things to create different textual and color effects on the work. The exhibition includes several of the 52 commissions that Bertoio fulfilled for architects and corporate clients and libraries and whatnot. We just talked about one of them, Screen Tree, which is now Crystal Bridges. Like I said, there are a couple in the show and the catalog details and has photographs of all 52. The catalog is going to be a serious document used in preservation fights for decades to come, one suspects. I want to ask about one in particular that informed non-commission, non-site specific work. And that is a spillcast work, a so-called spillcast work he made for Dulles International Airport, another Saarinen, not quite collaboration, but another Saarinen project. What are the spillcasts and what was the happy, almost funny, maybe actually funny accident that instigated Bertoia's method in making work that way? Yeah, the spill casts are incredible. And I don't think it's an accident that I think almost every every contributor in the catalog references at some point like that was the commission that everybody really was drawn to. It's a super important example 
of the spill cast and uh, luckily is still in situ at Dulles International Airport. So the next time you have a layover or passing through, please make sure to go see it. It's kind of right behind security, a, a weird kind of courtyard atrium-ish type space right, right behind security. You have to go seek it out because of how the, the airport was reconfigured during renovations within the last couple of decades. Yeah, you, you do have to seek it out, but it is still there. And actually, the architects, when they were redoing Dulles, were very, very, it, it ended up moving about two and a half, three inches from its original location and just got pushed back slightly. They did work very, very hard to to kind of keep it true to its original intent and location. And this was a project that is the largest example of what is known as Bertoia's spill cast or spill casting works. This was a technique that developed, again, from a, another pretty natural reference point. He was really good friends with Clifford West, who he had met, was a student of his at Cranbrook. And he lived on uh, Osaba Island in Georgia, off the coast of Georgia. And Bertoia goes down and visits him and kind of sees, you know, is, is on the island during a storm and kind of sees the churning seas and erosion and just these kind of really, you know, primordial natural forces at work. And so this is on one hand, the backdrop, he's, he's thinking about, you know, these, these forces of nature. And then he's, he's at a foundry around the same time and sees bronze boiling over this big spilling of bronze that was an accident, right? So he's kind of on site just for this, this thing that shouldn't have happened and sees it and sees it happening. And something kind of clicks for him where he puts those two reference points together. And so begins experimenting with this new technique. And it's something that is proprietary to, to, to him. And it's, it's really something that he doesn't do a huge amount of works of it. Again, it is kind of this moment of time in his practice, but he gets the commission to, to do this, essentially a wall for four Dulles International Airport. And a, a kind of misconception is that this this was his last project with with Aero Saarinen. He he collaborates three times on Saarinen projects. Uh, so the the General Motors technical screen, the the MIT Chapel, and Dulles International Airport. But of course, Saarinen will pass away unexpectedly before the Bertoia Dulles Commission happens. And so it's actually Bertoia working pretty closely with Kevin Roche. So the conversation around the piece develops, and there's some really interesting correspondence. There's so much interesting correspondence actually between Bertoia and architects on these commissions and and the amount of like just mutual respect and appreciation between practitioners is is really just kind of heartening and, and wonderful and uh, certainly that's how it was with with Roche and Bertoia and Bertoia had gone to meet with Roche to talk about the project and they weren't really getting anywhere right they didn't really kind of know like they knew they wanted to have Bertoia do something and they didn't really know what it was and they ended up kind of settling on um, this wall and and certainly Bertoia this is something that I talk about in my book Alloys Bertoia thinking through maps and the world and natural forces and this very much comes I think they started from a point of like, oh, maybe like some sort of atlas, like thinking about atlas, thinking about airline travel, thinking about the jet age, right? All of those things kind of swirling around and they end up settling on these panels and Bertoia kind of coming out of these dual experiences of Osaba Island and the, the, the bronze spilling at the foundry or the, the, the mill, I should say, those two things kind of come together and he ends up creating these panels and he wants to create them all in one shot it's super labor intensive it involves him again you know melting bronze and pouring it into kind of these beds of sand and swirling with 
sticks and other materials. He'll sometimes throw materials, different substances, water, stones, different metal pieces into the molten hot level and that bronze. And that's why you see these kind of pockets bursting, right? These kind of, again, natural effects uh, of the molten metal. And certainly the, the dullest screens are important, not only for their kind of monumental deployment of the spill casts, but when you get up close with them, they do look like these crazy surfaces of the earth, right? Like it's like Icelandic terrains or or planetary, like interplanetary terrains, right? Like these really amazing plums and bronzes and greens and, you know, like all these different associations of lichen and, you know, rust and all of these kind of organic references being invoked that very much does look like the earth when seen from above, right? So this kind of, again, correlation with what the site was was made for. And certainly, you know, the, the final result is something that is really fully integrated into the architecture and was absolutely made to serve as a counterpoint to the kind of more minimal austerity of, of Saarinen's architectural design for the for the concourse in which the screen ends at the at the at the, the, the termination point of, of that space. When he saw that accident at the foundry, um, there's a great story in the catalog of how somebody tried to to hustle him out of the space, not wanting him to see it, slightly embarrassed by it. Kevin Roach, you, you mentioned Kevin Roach. He effectively inherited the Saarinen firm. It became Roach Dinkaloo, big institutional firm of the mid to late 20th century, among other things, the architect of record for the Met. Blame that firm for the Robert Lehman Galleries. Ha ha. Uh, let's wrap up with this. On the on the second segment of, of the show this week, I will be talking with Olivia Block about Bertoya and sound and how she's engaging it at the Nasher Sculpture Center. So before we get to that segment, can you detail for us how Bertoya came to be interested in sound, particularly in those pieces we were talking about a moment ago, the ones with the uh, rectangular bases and the vertical rods, the screen-like works? Yeah. So I think, you know, as you mentioned, there, there's already this presence of a kind of verticality of, of rods that he's using. And and we do see him, I think, you know, again, wires and rods, we see him deploying in all sorts of different ways throughout his career. And this is something that he's exploring really, really early on. And it's actually in around 1959, 5960 is when we think uh, the kind of first, what, what, what is called the sounding sculptures, begin to appear in their nascent forms within Bertoya's practice. And again, like like most things kind of happens as an accident in terms of, of him putting onto a, a base vertical rods that when when touched or activated in some way reverberated against one another. And Bertoya's family was was very musical. His his brother Arresta actually was was the musician in the family and his sister Abe sung and and so music was always something that you know, was was a part of, of his family and his life, and he had an interest in it. So the the sounding sculptures, which is a group of work within Bertoya's practice that are comprised of gongs, of which he did solid plates and two plates put together, so they're slightly hollow inside. Works that are called singing bars, which are kind of two pieces of, of metal rotting hung from the ceiling that kind of clang against each other. And then the more well-known part of his sounding sculptures, the tonals. And the tonals are those metal rods affixed to a base. Usually Bertoya is using a naval brass plate for the tonals, but 
as the, the tonals develop within Bertoia's practice, and it really is, you know, his his preoccupation, I would say, in the 70s. He's doing other pieces as well, but the sounding sculptures really become a huge focus of, of his practice. And we see the, the, the most of them kind of being produced in the 70s. But he's really, really attuned, no pun intended, to the differences of metal. So we have a lot in archival materials from what, what are known as the shop files that, that Pretoria kind of kept and that would become part of the archives of American art following his death. We have a lot of documentation showing how I guess the engineer in Bertoia really kind of came came to the fore. Copper sounds different than bronze, than, than Tobin bronze, than phosphor bronze, than copper. And he's using all of these different, again, very, very industrial materials to create sculpture with different sound for different situations. So the the, the kind of famous piece that he does for Standard Oil, the, out, the Outdoor Commission, that's mentioned in the catalog. There's really amazing kind of correspondence between him and and the architects working out of Edward Durrell Stone's office, you know, where he's like, oh, we actually need to use this particular type of metal. It's going to sound this way. He does the same thing with the large scale commission for the for the Denver, for Colorado National Bank in Denver with Yamasaki. You know, he's talking like, you know, copper is going to be more expensive here, but this is really where we have to go if we want to get the best sound out of it at, at this site, with this height, with this configuration. And I think the sounding sculptures, like I was mentioning before, everyone is unique. This is what this kind of blows my mind because there are so many tonals out there and each tonal is different. It's a different configuration in a different layout with a different type of metal. Each one of them sounds the same. And certainly this is something that kind of becomes part of Bertoia lore, I think. It is something that a lot of people, I think outside of the furniture is maybe the next thing people come to Bertoia is, is an interest in what was really pioneering kind of sound sculpture. And part of that myth really does have to do with his home studio barn, which becomes known as the sonambient barn. And this is a term sonambient that Bertoia, it's a neologism that Bertoia himself creates. He actually looks into patenting it. And it very much kind of becomes a word that is used synonymously with tonal, which I would love to correct. I'd love to take this moment to say, do not call tonals or sounding sculptures sonambient. It is not the correct usage there. But the Sun Ambient were really kind of the whole work together. There was a film made that was called Sun Ambient. There were recordings that he did oftentimes with his brother, series of recordings that you can find pretty easily available online. They did press them into kind of LPs that a lot of museums have in their collections. Those are also referred to as Sun Ambient correctly. And then just the whole experience, right? The idea of the Sun Ambient was really about a, a kind of musical or oral environment that was created through sculpture. So Toya took to create those recordings and to really activate those sculptures would arrange them in his barn on his property, his home property in Pennsylvania and essentially play them. And I have to say, I, I was able to kind of experience that space a few years ago. And I'm, I'm a pretty, you know, jaded art consumer at this point in, in my life and career. And I, I do have to say that it was just transcendent. I, I mean, and I, and I know, you know, the, the Nasher is doing a really pretty amazing musical series of programs around the show and obviously having Olivia's work also in dialogue with, with Bertoia's. But to really hear these sculptures played, and Bertoia wasn't precious about them, right? Museums are, and rightfully so. But Bertoia wanted these works to be activated. He wanted them to be 
heard, not just seen. And they are incredible sculptures on their own terms, but really it's when you hear them when you hear that activation, that that something kind of magical happens and you are immersed within sculptural space, right? You hear it, you feel it, you see it. And I think when you see the tonals kind of played, there definitely is a kind of oral component to them, but it's also like the reverberation of those wires together and the kind of entropy of the the movement of those of those rods being played where you just sculpture is is transformed right it becomes a completely different revelation and reverberation and he thought really really carefully and consciously about how to use sculpture and how to use sound as a sculptural material right so within those tonals you see different tops there's some that are known as reed tops that don't have any sort of appendage on the top of the rod there are cattails which have kind of they look they're they look like they're in the catalog i mean they, they, <laughs> they look, look like, like cattails, cattails exactly yeah. <laughs> they look exactly like cattails uh, and oftentimes he's using different materials in the rods right so you would have phosphor bronze rods and then you'd have a copper cattail at the top which also changed the sound and then the third category there's four but the third and most known category the cylinders which look like kind of squat cylinders atop and then uh we have what what we're calling bud tops which are these they again look like buds uh, off of a flower or a, a tree and so all of those different tops all of those different bases all of those different configurations of the tonals completely change the sound the look everything about the sculpture so even in in what seems at first glance to kind of be like oh look there's another tonal it's just another one of those rod sculptures there's something really different and unique happening in each individual piece so i'm really really happy that in the exhibition we not only got to include works from the sun ambient barn but also just other examples of, of all of the sounding sculptures we have gongs and singing bars in the exhibition and i think to see all of them together i think really gives you a sense that this was not just about creating again a precious sculpture meant to be displayed on a pedestal and only looked at from a distance. But these things that, again, existed and were affected and shaped the everyday world and, and space in which they inhabited. And I think that's also really, again, another through line within Bertoia's career. Love it. Marin Sullivan, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, Ulysses Jenkins Without Your Interpretation. This major retrospective of the groundbreaking Los Angeles artist encompasses video works, performances, and archival ephemera that highlight the scope of Jenkins' 50-year practice. A pivotal influence on contemporary art since emerging in the late 1970s, Jenkins has constructed an other history that interrogates race and gender as they relate to ritual, history, and state power. Ulysses Jenkins is on view at the Hammer Museum February 6th through May 15th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. The Scene Changes, sculpture from the collection of Sheldon Museum of Art, presents a broad range of artistic approaches to sculpture, from exploration of the physical potential of material and form to use of the medium's capacity to convey concepts and narratives. The exhibition opens with sculpture deeply rooted in modernism, Seminal works by Louise Bourgeois, Alexander Calder, and Isamu Noguchi, each a historical linchpin of the medium's evolution in the 1950s. Moving forward in time and practice, a second selection of works highlights modernism's concern with the distillation of primary form and pure materiality, as seen in works by Anne Truitt and John McCracken. To these, the museum adds simplified forms imbued with implicit narratives, works by Martin Purrier and Ursula von Reidingsvart. 
The exhibition follows a sculpture's progression into a medium that examines contemporary issues and tells complex stories, with works by Leonardo Drew, Nicholas Gallinan, and Amanda Ross Ho. The scene changes is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from February 2nd through July 2nd, 2022. Welcome back. Next up, Olivia Block joins me to discuss the sound installations she has made from Harry Bertoia's so-called son ambient sculptures. They're the tall ones with kind of the knobby bits on top. We'll have images on manpodcast.com, of course. Block's new composition, titled The Speed of Sound in Infinite Copper, will highlight the Bertoia's ability to create a palpable sonic space while allowing the audience to activate the sonic experience by moving about a gallery. The Speed of Sound and Infinite Copper will be presented at the Nasher in Dallas through April 24th. Block's discography includes over 20 solo and collaborative recordings. She has performed and exhibited around the world, including in Chicago's Millennium Park, we'll talk about that one here in a second, and at venues such as the Institute of Contemporary Art London and the Reina Sofia in Madrid. Olivia Block, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. How long ago did you first become interested in Harry Bertoia? Because you've been working on Bertoia-like things for a number of years now. Yeah. So actually, the first time I heard of Bertoia was through the original releases of the LPs that were made. So it was way back. You know, I was actually in Austin, Texas, just kind of like in a rock band at the time. And, and I remember... <laughs> just being kind of bumming around on somebody's porch. And he was like, you got to hear this. This is amazing. And I heard this LP and I was like, what is this? This is so beautiful. And then I heard about this artist and actually saw photographs of some of the pieces. And, and there was even like an, a talk of an effort between myself and like some of my friends, like we could pull together and buy one of these, <laughs> you know, like they're for sale. So that's what started my admiration of his work is through the sound. And then later, when I moved to Chicago, I was teaching at the School of the Art Institute. I still advise there. But there is a, a sonambient sculpture at the Aeon Center. Which is, which is a big office tower. Yes, correct. Yeah, it used to be the Amico building. And so they had commissioned Bertoia to do this really beautiful double sonambient piece that where the pieces were like in water and these pools of water but they were kind of split apart and parts of them were sold over the years and so there are a few pieces of the larger installation left on site but I just thought that they were so beautiful and but they were just languishing for a while like the previous owners kind of just did let them go a little bit like there was like a rod missing on one and they just didn't seem to be very happy. Like they just seemed a little sad. And so in noticing that, I was thinking like, why isn't the, why isn't this artist getting more attention? Like this, these are beautiful public pieces. And, you know, I, I walk around downtown Chicago and I see these other amazing public works that are being talked about a lot, like the Picasso and all these other things. And my noticing that issue kind of made me want to do a large public sound piece using sounds from the Sonambient sound sculptures just to kind of call attention to his work a little bit. And that happened in 2016. That kind of culminated in this installation called Sonambient Pavilion, in which I took recordings of a lot of the Sonambient sculpture 
and process those sounds. And then they were diffused in the Pritzker Pavilion, which is this gigantic, there's a lawn, huge, huge lawn that starts at the Gary Bandshell. This is in Chicago's Millennium Park. That's right. Yeah. And over the lawn, there's this metal trellis, a large like trellis that houses a huge array of speakers, like just, you know, I think it's like 60 speakers. And originally those speakers were intended to kind of diffuse the music that was happening on stage to the audience that's sitting on the lawn in the summer for summer concerts. I looked at that system and I thought it would be so amazing if these sounds from the Pretoria sculpture could be somehow like diffused through these 60 speakers over this like football field lawn. And so through working with this organization, Experimental Sound Studio, and with the city, we were able to kind of take apart the system, the sound system, so that it was, each speaker was kind of separated. I could do the sound installation with the Bertoya sounds through this crazy, cool system. And because this is every bit as cool as it sounds, we will have a link to the project on Olivia's website from the show page on manpodcast.com. To fill in a couple of quick things, the Aon building in Chicago was originally the Standard Oil headquarters and then became, as you mentioned, Amico, and then became the Aon building or Aon Center. The work is outside it. So we will have an image uh, or three on manpodcast.com of that 1975 Bertoya outside the Aon building. So the reason I wanted to to include or begin with that Bertoya from what is now seven years ago before moving to the Nasher piece is that in your address of the Aon Center's Bertoya, you built a sound installation that took advantage of the physical form of that metal latticework around above extending from the Pritzker Pavilion. What about using space and making the experience of the Bertoyas physical interested you then? A few things. One is that the lattice work was kind of almost like a partial structure in and of itself. So I thought that that was an interesting kind of parallel to the sound, the sonic aspect of the Bertoya sculptures, because it's kind of a, it's another time-based aspect of a sculpture in, in that case, like in, in the case of a sounding sculpture. And so for some reason, like I was kind of associating like this partial structure with the less solid, more amorphous time-based sound aspect of Harry Bertoya's sculptures. And the location of the Pritzker Pavilion is kind of near the lake of Chicago. So there's on the east side, there's the Lake Michigan. And then in the downtown area, as you head west, like the structures kind of get more and more solid. Like it's like you're first it's the lake, then it's kind of like these gardens and parks and things. And then you get to the buildings, the big buildings. So so in a way, I was kind of thinking of both the sound and this architecture as like these partially solid architectural aspects that I wanted to highlight. And I also was thinking a lot about, and I still do think a lot about, the just the physical properties of metal, because that's so much a part of Harry Bertoya's work, both visually and sonically. And so the fact that in this case, like there were these 
gigantic, you know, visual metal pieces that were sort of stretching over this area made almost like a visual point to understand with the vastness of the space. So it was it was not only just hearing the sounds like stretched in this distance, you could actually see the distance in these lines of metal that were happening. And I think that hearing these sounds exploding outward, it just calls attention to the fact that the sculpture itself is no longer there. So the solidity is not there anymore. And it's only this amorphous thing that's happening everywhere. It can stretch out so much farther than it than it was before. It makes all the more sense when you think of the physical space, because that really is how Millennium Park feels right there. I mean, you have this one stage of tall for their time buildings across Michigan Avenue. And then to the north, you have big buildings. And to the south, you have the Art Institute. It's like this very specific spatial relationship that is kind of more like, I don't know, Central Park West or something than, than almost anywhere else in the in the Midwest or the American West. Yes, exactly. And it's and so one of the the one of the tallest buildings that you see when you're right there is the Standard Oil building, which is where the sculptures are. So they're literally right across Randolph Street from the Pritzker Pavilion. So it's almost like taking this contained sound and bringing it out into this larger area and calling attention to it. Yeah, it's the building directly across Randolph from the back of the Pritzker Pavilion. I mean, you could you could throw a football and hit it almost. It sounds like something people in Chicago would do. What would I know? Uh, <laughs> from the look of those those sculptures at the time, it looks like that had already happened a few times. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm going to get email, but now you're going to get email. <laughs> Yes, exactly. They look they look so much better now. They look great, actually. Oh, good. Oh, good. So 2015, you do Bertoia. You could have considered yourself done with Bertoia. But when the Nasher called for what was expected to be a 2020 retrospective, and we'll get to that in a minute, you were willing to dive back into Bertoia. So what about Bertoia, the sculpture or his his own interest in sound. What about Bertoia made you willing to go there again? The sounds, they're just beautiful. The sounds are so beautiful. They're so much fun to work with. It's pretty, it's as simple as that, honestly. Those sounds are just magnificent. The The decay of the, of the sounds from the Sonambians are so, are longer than any decay of any metallic I mean, maybe like a huge gong, like a percussive, orchestral percussive gong or something. But other than that, they're just really unique and magnificent sounding pieces. So I'm always up for working with those sounds. They're just fun to, to record. They're fun to sculpt. I still have this kind of affection for Bertoia's work. And I think there's there's just like, I feel like it's almost like there's a crew. There's a ragtag crew of people who are just like, but so into his work. And I, and I guess I'm one of those people. And so I'm always kind of down to like work with those sounds again. And I also was so just excited about this retrospective that I thought that adding, you know, the, the, the sonic element to that show would be a great way to kind of demonstrate what those sonambient sound sounding sculptures sound like when they're activated because the way that they are arranged at the show you can't touch them of course because i mean they're rare pieces of art so 
I think it's it's really important to get a sense of what they do sound like. And that's one of the reasons for my piece in the show. We will hear a clip in a minute, but just to kind of communicate how magical the effect of the sound of Bertoia's is yesterday, you know, in terms of when we're taping this, yesterday, a Nasher Sculpture Center staffer posted like a 12-second Instagram video of some pieces being played, if you will, in the gallery during the exhibition installation. And I played them while I was sitting in a brewery. Like, you know, I didn't think I didn't think I was close enough to anybody for them to hear what I was making my phone do. And all of a sudden, I mean, within five seconds, I had eight friends who all wanted me to play it again. I mean, it is just like a, 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 a siren out of the Odyssey or something. Yes, it really is. It's just a magical sound. And the Nasher is very close to, I don't know what cathedral or church is nearby, but there's some amazing bells, like church bells that happen on the hour. And so there was such a, it was so much fun to work on it when the hours would pass and I would hear those. It was almost like they were talking to each other, all the the bell-like structures were kind of like speaking to one another. It's really cool. So here's where things get weird. This exhibition was supposed to open in the spring of 2020. At least I think it was the spring, but it was certainly in 2020. And then a little thing happened around the world. So you have actually created two works. So that first work you created for the Nasher for 2020, what was that work? And then why, you know, why didn't it happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was such a heartbreaking thing. Cause I, yeah. So COVID happened and at right leading up to the, to the first opening in 2020, I had been working on a different version of this piece, which had, so right now as the piece is now, there are, there's a sensor kind of interactive aspect to the piece and the sensors, which were kind of produced and designed by Stefan Moore, who's really great at sensor work. They are ultrasound sensors, and they're kind of on these bars overhead in this lit area. And when people walk around that area, the ultrasound gets information about where you are and kind of pings it back. There's no reason to touch anything. There's no like tactile element or anything like that. But my previous the previous iteration of the piece was actually designed for a completely different kind of sensor. The sensor was this these little air pressure sensors that I was going to use so that people could go up to these little objects and kind of blow on them. And then the delicate kind of sensor pressure change of the breath would then trigger these sonic things to happen. But of course, as soon as COVID hit, I was like, okay, that's out. <laughs> it's just, I'm going to have to scrap that. And I, you know, I talked to Jed on the phone, who's the curator, and we were both just like, it was, you know, it was still early enough where we didn't know how long this was going to last. So I think everyone was like, well, maybe, you know, in a few months, it'll be back to normal and and this will be fine, you know, but as the months kind of crept on, it was clear that. I had to change the, totally change the design. And so I think actually I'm really, really happy with the way it turned out. And this is, this is the best way it could be. So I'm happy about that aspect of the, of the COVID intervention. <laughs> I think it worked out well for this piece. So that's great. So we have a couple excerpts here, thanks to you, of course. So let's set up the first excerpt by maybe you giving an idea 
of what people will see and experience as they walk into the gallery at the Nasher, and then we'll play the clip. So what you will see when you walk into the gallery is not much because it's very dark, except for this long line of moving light on the floor in the middle of the, in the center of the space. So there are two projectors that are pointed down at the floor and those projectors are playing videos of a sonambient sculpture moving in the wind. But because they're pointed at the floor, it just looks like almost like shadows or reflections of those sculptures. So the piece is designed to have visitors kind of come in and move in that lit area and just kind of walk slowly around. And once they do that, the sensors start to, you know, get information about their movement and their presence feed that back into the system, the program, and then all of these sounds start to happen. And the first sounds that happen are these long drone sounds. And those are kind of the decay aspect of the envelope in terms of the sound, like the, the physical aspect of the sound. So there are these long lines of sound that I've actually kind of extended through processing. And so they start and then you kind of just like let them play out and they fade away really, really slowly over time. And as you keep moving through that, the moving lit area pathway, then these chime sounds start to happen, which are much more like bells and they're kind of like the attack part of the sonic envelope that's appearing in the space. And then once you, you know, once a visitor might move around a little bit, you know, maybe the best thing to do is just to sit on the benches and listen for a while because like there's certain sounds that they just have to kind of play out. So there's, it kind of requires a little bit of attention and time in, in your visit for listening. And so you can either kind of move around in that light or you can just sit on these benches and either listen to what other people are triggering or just kind of wait for the sounds that you started to to end. So here's an excerpt. Uh, Olivia Block, The Speed of Sound in Infinite Copper, which is now at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. And we're back. That was from The Speed of Sound in Infinite Copper, Olivia Block's installation at the Nasher in Dallas. Is there almost a melody that you are able to pull out of Bertoia's abstraction? 
my ears are drawn to harmonies in his work, but I really actually, now that you say that, I think that the chime aspect does lend itself to kind of like a melodic pattern. And it depends on who's setting off which chime and when, because the frequency content of all of these sonambients are kind of like the, the ones that I recorded are not the biggest ones and not the smallest ones. So this, it's all kind of in the same range, frequency range. And because of that, then there is almost like a melody that happens because each sonambient sculpture is almost like a different note and like a scale, you could say. But of course, it's not tuned to any kind of chromatic scale or even like a just intonation or anything. It's just kind of in, I guess, in the scale of the metal you know, in the, in the metal and however long each metal piece is. The second excerpt from the piece we're going to play here is strikingly different, and yet it's all coming from the same original place. Why is this next excerpt sound like it's coming from such a different place, even though it's still Bertoia? Well, so the next excerpt, kind of highlights a completely different aspect to the sound sculptures. I think that I like to think of his sounds in terms of the envelope, as I mentioned before. So there's the attack aspect of the sound, which is the original striking of like metal against metal. Bertoia against Bertoia, if you will. Yes, exactly. And even that set of like the decay, the the attack kind of aspect of those pieces is very complicated because each of those rods is ever so slightly different in terms of height. So, which is, I think, why the sound is so complex in terms of overtone. So the attack is kind of like the, the more bell-like chime, the more kind of aggressive sound. And then the decay is like the long kind of waiting for the sound to end. And so I wanted those two aspects to be present in the piece and to be pretty kind of different from each other. And there's actually a few of those chime-like sounds that are that are pretty aggressive. Like like that it kind of they're almost a little bit frightening, which I think is kind of amazing. Like there's just there's a couple that really jump out and they usually happen after you know a few dr like drones have already started. So it's pretty fun and interesting to see people react to these like it's almost like fireworks like things kind of coming out through the speakers at them and it just lends this completely different kind of feel to the piece excerpt number two from the speed of sound in infinite copper
That was an excerpt from Olivia Block's The Speed of Sound in Infinite Copper. I want to wrap up by by asking about movement and sitting, which we talked a little about earlier. I was like, I guess I was kind of surprised to hear you say that, like, you thought it would be a great idea if people sat on a bench and just listened. Because when I think of a lot of your work, I think of space and movement. You know, for lack of a better phrase, did you have to get okay with the idea that sometimes in an art museum you got to hold still so you don't bump into something? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think, I think in this case, the listening aspect and the stillness that's required for that is pretty important for me. It's, it's important to have both, actually. And I, I just think that these are sounds that require longer listening time periods. And so in order to facilitate that, I find that having a place for people to sit quietly will encourage them to stay longer. I think if it's just, if the piece was just inviting people to move, they would just move around a little bit and then they would leave. And so my my main goal with the with the benches is just to have people really come in and like be immersed in the sound and stay there, close their eyes. Like, so they move at first, they start the piece, when, however that's going to play out. And then they, they stay, they stay for a while. As I hear you say that, it occurs to me that when people get back up, you know, stand up, they're going to walk out of your gallery and right back to the Bertoyas from which the sound originally came. Right. And so I think the sitting is a nice way to leave the the sonic space and go back into the looking at the visual aspect. It's kind of a nice transition point in a way. Olivia Block, thank you. Thank you so much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.